If you have your Bibles, please turn with me once again to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 3. We're continuing in our summer series, such as it is, through Paul's wonderful letter to the Ephesians, a cherished and much beloved book of the Bible. Last week, last Lord's Day in the evening service, we considered the first 13 verses, the first half of chapter 3, and so we'll continue right along with the latter part of chapter 3 and at least begin to consider Paul's magnificent prayer here. We will zero in on verses 14 through 19 this morning, and as we consider part of it uh, is that what Paul prays for his people, part of what Paul prays for his people, the prayer Paul makes for the Ephesian Christians and really for all Christians everywhere. So first let's read God's word, and then we'll ask for his blessing upon our study of it. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 14, we'll read through verse 19. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us today. Would you pray with me again, friends? Our Father, spread before us now on these pages is your holy and an errant word. It's the voice of the one true king. Truly, we bow before you and our hearts are open to you. We pray that you'd forgive the sinfulness of your servant this day and that his feeble and stumbling efforts would not serve to obscure the brilliance and the clarity and the purity of this, your holy word, but rather that you would send us your Holy Spirit and his ministry and by the Holy Spirit that you would wield your word in our hearts for your glory. Give us insight and understanding, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my friends, once again, we have an absolutely stunning passage before us this morning. I sound repetitive, I sound redundant. Every passage in Ephesians seems that way, and it truly is. But as we've been going through Ephesians, we're zeroing in on various passages and pericopes, and it's helpful, I think, to zoom out a bit from time to time and not lose the forest for the trees. Uh, to survey the landscape and see where we've been as we've been making our way through this wonderful letter and where we're going. So let me remind us of some of the context, just to refresh us and reorient us. Back in chapter 2, you may remember, the Apostle Paul provided us with this breathtaking overview of Christian salvation, uh, describing how God delivered the Ephesian believers from death and united them to Christ and brought them into his body, his people, the church. He gives that glorious, heraldic gospel announcement. You can see there in chapter 2, looking at verses 2, and then 3, and then 4, and then 5, like a, like a trumpet blast sounding forth, announcing the greatest news in all the world. It's that truth that we love so well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he proceeds then to speak of how 
Christ Jesus tore down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And now all who believe on the Lord Jesus are being built up into this unified body, a holy temple, one people of God. So, based on all that from chapter 2, Paul's about to launch into a prayer for these people, his Ephesian believers, his Ephesian people, the saints. And at the end of that extraordinary view of God's work in the soul and in the, the Ephesians' lives, as he goes through this this, this, this thunderous, glorious announcement that is chapter 2. At the end of all that, Paul's about to burst with joy. and he's, he's, he's ready to do only the most logical of things next for the Ephesian saints. He's ready to pray for them. And that's how he begins chapter 3 at verse 1. You see it there? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... For this reason, in in view of all that I've been saying about the greatness of God and the the glories of his saving grace, for this reason I, Paul, on behalf of you Gentiles, and he's about to launch into this prayer, and then at least in in my version of Scripture, maybe in your version as well, there's a giant hyphen, a giant M-dash right there after Gentiles to signal an interruption in his own strain of thought. He goes on that long 13-verse excursus, Paul does, a long side note. Like so many other preachers that we know and love, the Apostle Paul gets so excited about what he's talking about that he gets sidetracked. He gets sidetracked in the midst of his own prayer. Of course, under the inspiration, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, and Paul the Apostle can't quite finish his thought yet. Paul wants to make sure that the Ephesians understand his role and their role when it comes to gospel ministry and the mission of the church. So that's the thrust of those first 13 verses, which we studied last Lord's Day evening. Paul describes the message, the ministry, and the mission of himself as an apostle, and by extension, the message and the ministry and the mission of the church as a collective whole. So we come then to verse 14 this morning, and here Paul gets back on track, if you like, with his prayer for the Ephesians, right? Verse 1 in chapter 3, for this reason, and he gives us long excursus on the nature of gospel ministry, and then verse 14, anyway, for this reason, here's my prayer for you. Originally, Paul had set out to pray simply in light of that glorious doctrine in chapter 2. The way that God saves sinners, that was fuel enough to prompt him into prayer. But that detour, if we want to call it that, that holy, glorious, splendid detour in those first 13 verses of chapter 3 is no accident. Paul went on that side note, and as he was on that side note, he was reminded of something more. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. So I ask you, Ephesians, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So there's actually not one, but two motivations driving Paul's prayer for the Ephesians here in chapter 3. A two-pronged prayer basis. In light of the mighty stream of God's grace, which he piles on aspect after aspect in chapter 2, for this reason he's driven to pray for them. But then also verse 13. Do not lose heart, Ephesians. So now, verse 14. For this reason as well, I'm driven to pray for you. For all of God's gospel glories in chapter 2, I'm driven to pray for you. But also, in light of this, my situation, I'm also driven to pray for you as well. Paul's been reminded that even though God has been wonderfully at work in the Ephesians' lives, discouragement is nevertheless a real danger for them. Paul himself, as you know, is in prison for the gospel's sake as he's writing this letter, this very letter. The persecution of believers, because of their convictions, was already a stark reality and a stark possibility in their world, in their context, in their lives. And the danger then, 
As one man pointed out, one scholar, in the first century Christian church, just as it may well be a danger now, is that we allow our contexts, our fears, the opposition and the hostility of the culture, we allow that to obscure the great grounds we have for hope and confidence before God. That's the temptation, that's the danger. Along the way, we've observed that it's likely that this book of Ephesians, this letter, was regarded as a kind of handbook for new believers, new Christians. Paul certainly structures it that way. He spends the first three chapters unfolding doctrine, the gospel, and then he spends the second half of his letter, the letter three chapters, unfolding the ethics or how we should live as believers. Right Here, Christians, here's what's true, chapters one, two, three, here's what you should believe, and here's how you should then live as God's people. That's what Ephesians boils down to. Here's what you should believe, here's how you should live. Here's what's true, now how to live in light of it. And history, church history, seems to indicate that over the ages, when new Christians were converted, baptized, as often Ephesians was preached, or at least read out loud at their baptism, a sermon appropriate for the occasion. Or the the letter to the Ephesians was copied down, and that letter was handed out to new converts. When they became a Christian, someone would give Ephesians to them, a little handbook on the Christian life. And for Christians in that era, that first century era, I dare say, as well as Christians in every age, fear and danger and doubt was a real factor. Christians then, every bit as much as Christians now, had reason to be tempted to fear and thus to forget the ground of their hope and to have the truth of their unassailable confidence in Almighty God and his promises, to have that truth obscured and clouded in their minds. If I can put it another way, real danger, real danger can breed real doubt and fear. And real Christians can find themselves really and genuinely troubled. God's people needed encouragement. They needed reminding of their great God and of his sovereign power and of his steadfast love. God's people in every age need that, don't they? It's an uncertain and unstable time in our nation, other places as well, spiritually speaking. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already realize. Depravity abounds. All restraints seem to have been cast off. No holds barred. Evil seems particularly emboldened and darker and more sinister than it has for most of our memories. At least in some segments. It's a scary place for Christians. People are frightened. and They want encouragement. They want hope. They want to know where there is comfort and assurance for the Christian in a hostile world. Paul's prayer here shows us the way. This prayer is is rich, it is dense, uh, from verse 14 all the way down to the end of the chapter there in verse 21. So we're not going to be able to cover it all in one installment. So what we'll do is we'll break it down and consider it over two or three sermons together. So two things which I'd like for us to see in our text this morning. As one commentary outlines it, quite simply, why and what? Why and what? Why Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians, and what Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians. So first of all, as we study through this text together, I want you to see the the why of Paul's prayers. Why Paul prays for these believers. He put another way, here's the goal. Here's the goal of Paul's prayers. Look at the text. Paul, ever the precisionist in his language, he follows a very careful structure. Each request in his prayer builds on the other, all of them leading toward a single climactic purpose. 
Uh, the late John Stott has called this prayer a stepladder prayer. Right? Each rung of the ladder leads to the next and to the next and to the next until you finally arrive at the top. So, for example, verse 16. Paul prays that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Now, what an extraordinary thing to pray for, right? A marvelous prayer. Strength by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. That's a great prayer. But do notice that that is not the conclusion or the goal at which Paul is aiming. Right? It's a means toward that goal. It is a means, that prayer, that, that, that request, if you like, that petition, is a means toward a more ultimate end. It is a stage or a step along the way. Dr. Alan Gelzo tells a story of a remarkable conversation he had once with Cornelius Van Til. A number of you will be familiar with that name, the great scholar of a Christian, Christian apologetics in the 20th century. Here's Gelzo's words. He wrote this once. I made a pilgrimage with a friend to the home of a professor of Christian apologetics. I was looking for direction. And even though Cornelius Van Til had been retired for many years, he was known to welcome inquirers whom he often greeted on his front porch with a rake in hand, suggesting that perhaps they could pile up his leaves for him before they talked. I was hoping to hear an intimidating, intellectually convoluted, scholastic, metaphysical strategy for blowing the philosopher's version of Gideon's trumpet. Van Til, then pushing age 80, stood with his hard white comb of hair brushed back from his cliff-like brow and the smile of an old Dutch dairy farmer, which his father had been. I asked him, Dr. Van Til, why did you decide to devote your life to the study of philosophy and the teaching of apologetics? The Latin, the Greek, the German scholarship, the metaphysics and the history and philosophy and systematic theology. And then I sat back to allow the metaphysics free room to roll. Van Til never blinked. Why, he said? To protect Christ's little ones. To protect Christ's little ones. You see, Van Til loved his Latin and his Greek and his German. He was a brilliant mind. He loved philosophy. He loved history. He loved metaphysics. He enjoyed and was invigorated. As much as a Dutch farmer ever gets excited anyway. But he was excited and invigorated by the tension in the classroom and the intellectual exchange and the, the back and forth debate, the scholarly exchange in journals and so forth. But you see, it was never an end in of itself. It was a step it was a means, all the scholarship, all the learning, all the erudition, a means toward a larger, more encompassing agenda in his ministry. His Greek and his Latin and his metaphysics was employed to this end, to protect Christ's little ones. You see something like that in Paul's prayer here. You see verse 17, he prays for power through the Spirit, verse 16, flowing into verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then verses 17, 18, and 19 explain what that will look like for these Christians. What will it mean that Christ should come and dwell in their hearts through faith more? It will mean a firmer, clearer grasp of the unfathomable mystery of the love of Jesus Christ toward his people. The, the empowering of the Spirit, the indwelling of Christ, a clearer, deeper grasp and enjoyment of our Savior's love. These are extraordinary things for which to pray, but none of them are the chief end of Paul's prayer. What is the chief end? 
to which all these other prayers, all these other requests, all these other petitions are merely rungs on a ladder building and building and leading to it. What is it? Verse 19. It is all so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. One commentator put it like this. I do not know that it is possible. I do not know that it is possible to explain what that means, filled with all the fullness of God. What a marvelous thing to pray for. Close quote. Another commentator points out that the words full and fullness are used in Ephesians all over the place to speak about Jesus. So chapter 1, back in verse 23, the church, right, is the fullness of Jesus, his body who fills all in all. Or you might skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus ascended above all heavens in order that he might fill all things. So, to be filled with the fullness of God must have to do with the fullest communion possible. The fullest relationship, the fullest fellowship between a human soul and the living God as he comes to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can put it another way, Paul wants nothing short of the maximal enjoyment of God in Christ by your heart, Christian believer. Paul wants nothing short of the maximal enjoyment of God by your heart in Christ, Christian believer. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Do you see, Paul isn't praying merely for growth, though that is a good and necessary thing. He isn't praying that the believers would slowly and steadily put to death the sins which they still entertain, though we must pray for that, of course. He isn't even praying for help to persevere through the wickedness of an ungodly society, though that is certainly something for which we must pray. No, the telos of his prayer, as one man puts it, is the total saturation of the Ephesians' lives with fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Now, please, let's, let's be clear. God, our Father, is not, he is not, he is not indifferent to our needs, and it is not as if we should not bring them to him, or that he does not stand ready to hear and answer our prayers in his mercy. Not at all. No, we are commanded to cast our burdens on God. That's why we pray the way we do, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and in our homes throughout the week. We are commanded to cast our burdens on our God, and he stands more ready to answer them than we do to even ask. But, if we aren't careful, if we're not careful, how easily our hearts become preoccupied with the immediate crises of the day. How easy it is to lose the forest for the trees. Our souls were designed. They are hardwired for something far more ultimate. That's what Paul is driving at in his prayer. To be filled with all the fullness of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Brothers and sisters, let us exercise great caution lest we end up, like so much of the North American church, lest we end up exercising a kind of, a kind of quiet, a kind of soft prosperity gospel, a quiet health and wealth prosperity gospel, right? We may not be so audacious like some to claim that if we become wealthy and we drive a Porsche, then that is evidence of God's favor upon us, right? God wants his people to be wealthy and happy and prosperous. We may not be so audacious as to go there, but 
if all God is to us is a means to deal with our problems for the day, if he's only a means to cope with the severity of our troubles, if the only time we turn to the Lord is because of health problems or a family struggle, if all God is to us is a means to keep our comforts, then we've already lost. And suddenly when our comfort is stripped away, And when the Christian faith comes under the assault of a lost and morally bankrupt and hostile society, our faith, such as it was, will very quickly melt away in order to make room so that we do not lose our convenient lives. That's the risk. On the other hand, if God himself is the ultimate goal, if maximal enjoyment of God in Christ by your heart, if the total saturation of our lives in, is in, in delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if that is the goal, then we will know that every loss in this life, every trial, every pain, every little drop, every ounce of suffering, every scorn, every slight, will be more than compensated 10,000-fold in the life to come. We will know, if we know that, as Martin Luther once wrote, we shall let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, because Christ is worth it. Christ Jesus is of such supreme value, such incomprehensible worth, greater than which cannot be conceived, and compared to which the comforts and baubles and Prizes and trinkets of this world are but shallow and paltry substitutes. If we know that, then every storm and every affront and every trial and every pain, Christ's people shall persevere and endure because he is of such supreme and surpassing value, eminently worthwhile the Savior is. And that knowledge, that knowledge, is what the Apostle Paul prays for his saints, for his people, the Ephesian believers and all Christian believers. So that's the first thing that we need to see this morning is why. Why Paul prays for these Christians. But then secondly, we need to look at what Paul prays. What Paul prays. As I said, there's so much to consider in this glorious passage. We're going to study it again uh, in the weeks to come. But let's at least begin to consider what Paul is praying for these Christian believers. So he's praying toward his his chief end in his prayer. He's praying toward the ultimate goal of their enjoyment of God and being filled with his fullness. Verse 19, that's his great agenda toward which he's praying. His prayer's building to that climax point. But what are some of the other things that he prays for? What the, The means toward the end. We said there's lots of means toward the end in this prayer. So what about those along the way? Well, verses 16 and 17. He prays that the Father according to the riches of his glory, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Don't you love Paul? He's so unashamedly Trinitarian. In so many of his prayers and so much of his teaching, Paul is so keen to draw our attention to all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three persons of the ever-blessed triune God. And Paul here highlights how all three persons of the Trinity are actively engaged in our salvation, both in in ransoming us from the grave and and even now in, in sustaining us and strengthening us for this life as we press onward toward glory. First, he notes 
the riches of the Father's glory. You see that there? To pray in accord is what he's getting at. To pray in accord with, with, with God's ability to grant this request. Pray according to the riches of the Father's glory. If I can put it another way, he's saying, Ephesian Christians, all Christians, ask of God the Father, bearing in mind all that God has stored up at the bank at his disposal. Right? The riches of God's grace and the resources of his power are inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. God's ability to grant this prayer is entirely in proportion with the vastness of his power and riches. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for him? Christians are hard-pressed on every side. And they want to be spiritually strengthened. They want to be fortified for the living of these days. Do you think God's up to the task? In other words, brothers and sisters, do not measure the prospects for God's church or the prospect for the extension of God's gospel in our country in these days or in other spiritually destitute places, Belgium, the kingdom of Belgium, throughout Western Europe. Do not measure the prospects for God's church or for the extension of God's gospel. Do not evaluate them by opinion polls or electoral races or Supreme Court decisions or European Union parliamentary mandates. As if those things, as if those things could somehow diminish the potential for the effectiveness of the ministry of the church of the living God. You think some gavel from Washington can somehow get in the way of what God is going to accomplish through his church? No. Measure the prospects for the ministry of the kingdom of God by the standard that Paul has given us here. God's ability to grant this prayer is entirely in proportion with the vastness of his power and his mercy. And he stands ready to hear and to answer the cries of his people. It's the riches, the riches of the Father's glory. But then also verse 16 Also, verse 16, Paul prays that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man. Strength and power. Now, at first blush, at first glance, you might be tempted to think that Paul is calling for some kind of brand of Christianity that is always victorious, right? Never any setbacks, always strong, never discouraged, vested with influence and authority. Or... Perhaps people might be tempted to think of what's sometimes called shock and awe Christianity. Miracles happening right there in the pews in front of your very eyeballs, slain in the spirit, calling down fire from heaven. Demonstrable evidence of the favor of God. It's demonstrated by outward signs and miracles, a very impressive show that the Lord is in this place. But neither of those strands are what Paul is calling for here. Christianity is a faith of strength and power, to be sure. But it is not the kind of tangible strength or power that the world might assume at first glance. It is not, it's not a showiness to amaze spectators. That's not what Paul's praying for. What is the Spirit's strengthening power? What's it meant to accomplish? Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's what Paul wants for the Ephesians. Now remember, right? The Ephesians are Christians. 
We've already established that back in chapter 2 when he reminded them, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. They have Christ. He is his and he is theirs. One commentator put it like this. When Paul asks that Christ may come to dwell in their hearts, Paul isn't praying for something new that has not previously existed, but rather he is praying for something more of what they already enjoy. Close quote. More of Christ Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. More of Christ. The times are dark, brothers and sisters. There's no doubt about it. We've had encouraging moments in the wider societal realm lately, things of common grace that have come down that for which we should give God thanks, yes. At the same time, others are celebrating the enshrinement of sin in our laws, and others, others are despairing and wringing their hands, fearing that all is lost. What shall our course of action be, people of God? My friends, we must, like Paul, we must bow the knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Take heart, weary and discouraged Christian, weak and fearful Christian. Take heart and keep pressing on. The God whom we serve is the God who holds the hearts of kings and emperors in his hands, and he channels them like a stream of water. He channels those hearts in entirely whatever direction he wills, as he pleases, as is his good pleasure. We have the good news of the only hope that can heal this cruel world, Sound it forth. Sound it forth here in eastern Tennessee. Sound it forth from the cobblestone streets in Ghent, Belgium, where they're so glad that Christianity has come and gone that they don't want to see it take root again. Because he fills you, Christian believer, with the fullness of Christ so that the affections of our hearts are wholly bound to him. And as we delight in him, as we realize the prayer of Paul prays, as we delight in him, as we get more of Christ And we get grace sufficient for the living of these days as we enjoy him. We will learn to say, to believe, and maybe, just maybe, even thunder along with Luther. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Praise God for the ministry of his word to us today. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord our God, we do bless you for your word. Truly, you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have the means of saving grace. You alone have the means of resurrection triumph. To whom else could we possibly turn? So now we ask that you would seal this word upon our hearts so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.